It's Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Let's do the smart thing and pray uh, before we go ahead and get started. As always, Lord, we just pray that you would teach and we would listen, just guide and direct us in all ways and all things, and let your spirit guide and direct us. We say thank you for just the time to be here, and um, Lord, thank you in your name. Amen. A couple little things before we get started. Like I said, we're going to do something a little different tonight. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. Give you a little bit of background. First off, there is about a 50-50 chance that this bow will fall off halfway through the service, so I'm just giving you a heads up right now. A um, couple other things I just want to let you know about. We're going to do Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to do a, a topical tonight about Christmas, and this is the background for that. You know we're doing our study through the book of Genesis, and we were up to Genesis to the lineage of Shem, which then introduces us to um, introduces us to uh, Abraham and his family, etc., and that's what I was planning on doing tonight. And it was one of those where I was thought, okay, we'll kind of continue on this. We're going to do a Christmas message on Sunday. And I had two different passages of Christmas messages I was kind of praying about on which one to go through. One was Isaiah 9, which we're going to be doing tonight. So this is how the background goes of how we got to this point. Normally the way I do a message is this. Uh, Teach Sunday, and what I start doing on Monday is start taking notes and preparing for Wednesday. As soon as Wednesday is done on Thursday, I start taking notes and start preparing for Sunday. So what happens is... Sunday gets done, and I'm starting to look at Genesis, looking at Shem and everything, and it's just not clicking. It just doesn't seem like it's clicking real well. And so on the way to an appointment this morning, I'm listening to the radio, and there's a guy, and he's teaching out of Genesis. He's teaching the Tower of Babel, which we just taught on last week. And I love the story of the Tower of Babel. So I'm listening to him teach, and it was one of those messages that was just absolutely amazing. And I got all done listening to the message. I felt completely and utterly deflated. Because I started realizing, boy, he had so many good points I've never even thought of. I almost wanted to go back and reteach the Tower of Babel message. So I already started feeling really weak, and I started thinking, you can't do justice to Genesis anymore. Just might as well quit and be done. So that's what happened on the way to the appointment. I already got myself worked into this mode of, you're going to totally screw it up. Might as well just get that guy's CD and push play on Wednesday nights from here on out. So I leave that appointment. I'm driving to another appointment, and I'm listening to a message, and the guy's teaching on Isaiah 9 which is the message I was praying about. So I took that as confirmation of, okay, Lord, this is good. This is what you want us to go through tonight. And the neat thing about it is, as I got a chance to listen to it, I can just repeat everything he said. So that's all I'm going to do tonight. I'm not even going to tell you who the guy is. So that way you don't even know. No, I'm kidding. Um, I'm not going to repeat what the guy said, but it really was some confirmation of what we're going through. Normally, the way we do the Christmas messages out here or the Easter messages is usually the service before the holiday we kind of stop. One of the things I'll probably say on Sunday when we do our Christmas message is for Christmas, as a big a deal as it is, it's kind of sad that we just stop and devote one service to this idea of this message of Christ coming down. So I think it is kind of nice that we can stop. And the way the holidays fell this year, we're not going to be meeting again for two weeks. So if we started something tonight with Shem or something, we're not going to pick it up in three weeks. And no one's going to remember anything about it anyway. So why not stop? And talk about this idea of Christmas. Now, this passage here that we're going to get to is Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. If you're like us, you probably have a window. This is what we do at our house. We take all the Christmas cards we get, and we put them up on the window. I'm willing to bet that probably 25% of the cards has Isaiah 9, 6 on it. 
It's a great passage. This is a wonderful Christmas verse. Now, the problem with this Christmas verse is this. We're kind of only looking at this verse. If you want the whole context of this, you need to do verses 1 through 7. So this wonderful verse about Christmas and how wonderful it is starts out of verse 1 of Isaiah 9. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. The passage of verses 1 through 5 is gloom, darkness, and despair. Verse 6 is the light that shines in the darkness. And that's why verse 6 is so vital. It's a great standalone verse. But if you really want the full context of verse 6, you've got to go back to verse 1. Israel is on the verge of being completely and utterly destroyed. Completely and utterly destroyed. That's why verse 1, the gloom is there. And this idea of verse 2, look, those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death. This is some dark time right here. And this is what's going on. Look at verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles. We start hearing stuff like that, and our mind just starts shutting down. I don't know who Zebulon is. I don't care who Naphtali is, etc. These are the different 12 tribes of Israel, and they're at one of the darkest times, if not the darkest time, in the history of Israel. Assyria is knocking on the door, and they're going to destroy them. So in this time of gloom and darkness, look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. They're walking in darkness. They're walking in the shadow of death. But there's a light, a light shining. Verse 3. You have multiplied the nation, increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Now there's a rejoicing. Verse 4. You have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. Now their yoke is being lifted, the oppression is being lifted. Verse 5. Every warrior's sandal from that noisy battle and the garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel fire. The battle is over. Now we get to verse 6. See, this is important to get this background. Gloom, despair, darkness, but yet there's light and joy coming. And the light and joy that's coming is because of why verse 6, a child is born and a son is given. Now, does not verses 1 through 5 really fit in perfectly with the world we're living in? I was just talking to someone recently. They said they don't watch the news because every time they watch the news, they just get depressed. It's gloom and darkness everywhere we go. I'm willing to bet some of you came in here tonight with some gloom and darkness in your life. And if you don't have gloom and darkness in your life, you know somebody who has gloom and darkness in their life. You may be walking in joy, but I bet some of you tonight know people that do not have any joy. They're walking in the shadow of death. See, it's kind of interesting. For as amazing as Christmas is as a season, how many times do you run into somebody, maybe some of you will admit this tonight, I hear people say, I hate Christmas. Now, Why do we hate Christmas? We hate Christmas because what Christmas has become to represent. Or what is Christmas really supposed to be? Verse 6, For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful. Let's stop right there. There's five different titles here for the Lord in verse 6. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The first word to describe the birth of the Savior at Christmas is wonderful. What a description of a holiday. Christmas is wonderful. What Christmas has become is not really wonderful. 
We joke at our house that we have the Hanukkah of Christmas. I think we're going someplace Monday, and then Tuesday, then Wednesday, then Thursday. And so you're going all these places which are fun, but yet everybody gets tired. There's all the hoopla and the hubbub building up to it. Is it wonderful? Sometimes it's not wonderful. It's not. What it's supposed to be, verse 6, it's supposed to be wonderful. Now, some of your translations may put wonderful counselor together. I'm not an expert on Hebrew, and I don't claim to be. But if you really study it out, it's two separate words. What the first word to describe Jesus is he's just wonderful. He's marvelous. That's what it means. And what you see here in verse 6 is you see the human side of him and his deity. Look at verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Child is born shows the human side of him. Son is born shows the God side of him. So what you have here in verse 6, you have the man and God together. And the result of that is, in verse 6, wonderful. So if you're the doom and gloom person... First thing you need to know is Jesus coming down in the flesh is wonderful. And that should give you joy. Going back to verses 1 through 5, that is a light that shines in the darkness. That's a light that shines in the shadow of death. That's the rejoicing you have. Now, if you can't get this first point, I don't know what else to tell you. Because if you can't realize in verse 6 that the coming of the Messiah as a little baby is wonderful, I don't know what else to tell you. It's a marvelous thing. Do not equate what we as a society do with Christmas as what Christmas is really about. It's wonderful what it really represents. Look at the next one. Counselor represents wisdom. Wisdom in a world that makes no sense. Look back to some of the words that we said right here. Verse 2, they're walking in shadows. Verse 2, they're walking in darkness. Have you ever walked in shadows and darkness? It's awful. But as soon as you turn the light on, what happens? That darkness and shadow just immediately disappear. That's the power of light. And I've seen people come in, they call, they talk, and they come in in the darkness of depression. You give them the scriptures and the encouragement of Jesus, the light comes on. And all of a sudden they get it. Counselor, he is wisdom, he is guidance, he is direction. So you got the marvelous, wonderful part. Okay. Now a lot of times people sit here and struggle with the whole counselor part. I don't know how many times people have come up to me and said, I don't know what I'm even here for. I don't even know what my purpose is in life anymore. Well, why don't you go talk to the counselor who gives wisdom and he'll reveal to you what the plan is. That's what he does. Next one, mighty God. I love this, mighty God. This is a real quick point about the whole mighty God thing. Turn, if you will, with me to Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah is just to the right here of Isaiah. One quick little verse, but it's an important one to go look at. Jeremiah 32. Let's talk about this idea of mighty God. We've established the scene that he's wonderful. We've established the scene that he's the counselor, the one that gives wisdom, the plan, the purpose. Now, mighty God. Now, as you're in Jeremiah 32, real quick about the whole mighty God thing. We get it. If you remember correctly, a few, I guess it's probably been a couple months ago, one of the points that we said in the message was the difference between macro faith and micro faith. Macro faith is the... I don't think God can do anything with it. Where's your faith? I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and three days later rose from the dead. But yet God's not able to fix this situation at home. God can't speak salvation to my child. God can't help me through work. God can't provide the bill, the money I need. But he can create the world in six days. 
That's macro. Now we need to make it micro. Here in Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah is struggling with something big. Really big. So what he does is he prays. Great. But look at his prayer, verse 17. Ah, Lord God. Behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. It's a worship song we sing out here. Look at that one more time. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. What he does in verse 17 is he sets the scene. God, you've created everything, so since you've created everything, there's absolutely nothing that is too difficult for you to do or accomplish. When you go into prayer with that mindset, it completely changes everything. He is mighty God. I think sometimes when we address the Lord in prayer, we address Him almost in weakness. Lord, I don't know if you could, possibly, maybe. Could you kind of help me through this? I know it's a big one. Could you help me? Nothing is too difficult for Him. Nothing is too hard for Him. Jeremiah 32, 17, God makes it clear that if we can accept the fact He created everything, He can do it all. Jump back now to Isaiah 9. He's wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. That's an interesting one. Everlasting Father. That's kind of an interesting phrase to give the Son, isn't it? I mean, we're talking about Jesus, the Son. But yet we're talking about Him being called the Everlasting Father. Now, there's two points on this one. The first one is, Jesus said in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never leave you nor forsake you. It's kind of interesting. Over the years out here at church, we've been asked numerous times to do counseling with families where things are falling apart. And sometimes they have kids involved in it. And I'm not trying to make any judgment calls or anything like that, but they'll say, can you bring the kid in? Because the kid is starting to act out, starting to act up a little bit. So they said, well, you talk to the child. So we sit down and we talk to the child. And one of the things that comes out, and it usually takes a while for it to come out, is the child, when it sees mom and dad not being able to get along, and when the child sees mom and dad and the marriage starting to fall apart, this child's little world is just completely rocked and shaken. Just it is. And what happens is there's this idea of that you just assume everything's going to always work out, that childlike faith. And you see this phrase, everlasting father. As a child of God... I never have to worry about my father leaving. I never have to worry about my father running away. I never have to worry about waking up one day and my everlasting father no longer being everlasting. This word is so vitally important. You will be let down by your parents. You'll be let down by your kids. You'll be let down by your friends, your spouse, your church, your pastor. You'll be let down by everybody other than your everlasting father. He will never leave you and he will never forsake you. That's the promise that we're given at Christmas. Too often in our lives, we get disappointed and worked up when a loved one that we thought would never hurt us, hurts us. There's only one person that's never going to hurt you, and that's your everlasting Father. Now, there's one other point on this that we need to talk about. Can you go to John 14, please? This is a little bit more of a theology point. John 14. How can the Son and the Father... How can the Son be the everlasting Father? Well, John 14 explains this to us. So, Christmas is wonderful. It's the Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. The time of this writing, it's darkness, it's gloom, it's despair, it's all this. But now there's a light and joy that's coming into it. Now, before we get to John 14, does anybody have any quick questions, comments over anything that we've covered thus far before we get to the second point of this Everlasting Father? Okay, Everlasting Father, verse 7 of John 14. 
If you had known me, you would also know my Father also, and from now on you know him and have seen him. Jesus is pretty straightforward here. He says, if you know me, you know my Father. Verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. Philip says, okay, can we see the Father now? Verse 9, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I spoke to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. See, that's how he can be the Son and the Father. There's that amazing picture there. Jesus says, yes, I am the Son, but I'm also in the Father. And that shows the oneness that they have, that everlasting. In this world where things are so temporary and there is not much that you can place your trust in in any way whatsoever. At Christmas, we're taught that Jesus, the Son, is the everlasting Father. And it goes back to one more. Look at verse 6, the last description here that we need to talk about. He is the Prince of Peace. Oh, I love that one. Prince of Peace. Who does not want more peace in their lives? I remember years ago when I first started coming out here, anytime Rich would, would teach and he would start talking about the blessing that you get. And I went through discipleship class with Rich and he would talk about this blessing. And most of the time when you hear the word blessing, we've been taught in our society that blessing means you get something. You know, if I come up to you and say, the Lord's going to bless you, well, there's a lot of people who believe, well, that means materialistically. Rich always used to say, sometimes that blessing is peace in the home. And I've run into people that do not have a lot of stuff at their house, but they have a lot of peace in their home. And that's a blessing. And I've seen the flip side. I've gone into people's houses that they have everything they could ever ask for, and there's no peace in the home. That's one of the neat blessings here of Christmas, is verse 6, is the Prince of Peace. Now, this word peace in the Hebrew is shalom. It's an interesting word because it really is translated, it can be translated peace, obviously, but it's also translated safety, which means... You're safe in the Lord. What are you safe from? You're safe from conflict. It doesn't mean that there's not a lack of conflict, but God helps you through it. I think this is a big lie we tell in the church all the time. You're not saved? Come to Jesus and He'll give you peace. Your life's a mess? Come to Christ and He'll fix everything for you. You're struggling right now? Come to Jesus and it'll all work out. Sometimes it doesn't. You can come to Jesus and your life's still a mess. You can come to Jesus and it doesn't all work out. You come to Jesus and he saves you from your sins, which takes you home to heaven. Jesus never promised freedom from conflict and storms. He said, I'll just help you through the conflict and storm. So this phrase, Prince of Peace, means safety during conflict. I think sometimes we lie about that. Or come to Christ and it all works out. No, come to Christ and save yourself from hell. And once you come to Christ, he'll give you peace during the conflict... But there's still going to be conflict. So look at this description one more time. Verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Human side of Jesus. Unto us a son is given. The deity side of Jesus. The government will be upon his shoulder. We'll get to that one in a second. His name will be called Wonderful. That's the first description of the birth of Jesus. Wonderful. Christmas is wonderful. Next one. Counselor. Wisdom. 
God gives wisdom on what the plan is. Mighty God, the strength that God gives. He's created the heavens and the earth. There's nothing too difficult for Him. Everlasting Father, He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Prince of Peace, safety during the conflict. Now go back to that other phrase there. The government will be upon His shoulder. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. There's no end to this. There's no end in any way whatsoever. That's the beautiful part about it. See, in verses 1 through 5, this government of Syria was a complete mess. They allowed idolatry into their lives. They were about to be destroyed by Israel. Excuse me, Assyria. They were going to be destroyed. But in verse 6, the government is upon the shoulders of the Messiah. Verse 7, His rule and reign will have no end. I, I love that. Heaven is not a temporary thing. It is a forever thing. Forever. Now, this promise of wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 6, that promise is given. You know how long it took for that promise to be fulfilled? 800 years. 800 years from the writing of Isaiah until Jesus was born about. Now, isn't that kind of crazy there? If you stop and you think about that, that's a long time for a promise to be fulfilled. So when God promises us something now, we live in this little fast food society where I pray for peace and I expect that peace to be there instantaneously. I pray for salvation of a loved one, I expect that salvation to be there instantaneously. I pray for healing, I expect that healing to be there instantaneously. The Lord says, sometimes I want to work through the darkness, the gloom, and all that. Because as you work through that, you start to respect and enjoy the light so much more. When you look at Christmas, hard to believe we're only a week away from this, it's really easy to get caught up in what it is as a society. And what I see happening here next week on December 25th, I do not see wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I I don't see too much of that in any way whatsoever. What I see it's supposed to be is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You and I have a choice, and we have to make that choice as we leave here tonight. What are we going to do with next week? We have to decide how that is going to be for us, what it really means and what it represents. If you allow the society to dictate what Christmas is to you, there's not going to be much peace, I'll tell you that right now. If you choose to say, I'm going to let it be verse 6, guess what's going to happen? That gloom in verse 1 will start to go out the window there. Verse 2, that darkness will start to go out the window. The shadow of death will start to go out the window. Like I said, I was just talking to someone recently, and they said, I hate Christmas. I said, you don't hate Christmas. You hate what Christmas is right now. What Christmas really means and represents, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. Anybody have any final questions, comments here? before we go ahead and close up with anything. Marcus. How did, how did Isaiah's prophecy get so misinterpreted by, by the Jews when, you know, obviously Christ came riding in on Palm Sunday was hailed as this king that they were looking for. How did they manage to so misconstrue? I mean, obviously it says forever and ever. Mm-hmm. No one's forever and ever. Right, and you're kind of saying, why did they think the whole thing was going to be Rome off their backs. Right. You know, and that's a really good question, and, and I don't have a great answer other than they were blind to it. We see what we want to see. Because it's kind of interesting. If you look in Acts, 
And let me get the reference here real quick. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he had to remind them one more time as well. Because when he got ready to ascend into heaven, he says uh, in verse 5 of Acts 1, you don't need to turn there. He says, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now we know that that happened at the day of Pentecost. What are the disciples' response to that? Verse 6, Lord, will you take at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? At the beginning of Acts, they still thought Jesus was going to get Rome off their back. They still thought that. And it isn't until they got into the book of Acts that they finally got it. So, the Marcus, the best answer I can give to you is we see what we want to see and we hear what we want to hear. I mean, that's why Jesus said so many times in the gospel, having ears they do not hear and having eyes they do not see. Because they wanted the Messiah to get Rome off their back. They didn't want the suffering Messiah for their sins. I know with my boys, my boys' biggest thing right now, and I have no idea why, the most exciting thing I could tell my boys is that they get to sleep on the couch. That's their favorite thing in the world right now. Every day, Dad, can we sleep on the couch? Can we sleep on the couch? And so they'll come up to me, and I'm not exaggerating. Every day, can we sleep on the couch? And so I usually say something like, no, guys, I don't think so. Now, what they hear is it's an opportunity. Maybe it is. I don't know how they hear that. I actually take them, and I get down on one knee, and I'm not kidding. I will take their little faces, and I will put my face inches from their face and say, repeat after me. I, I am, am not, not sleeping, sleeping on, on the, the couch. I kid you not, an hour later, Dad, can we sleep on the couch? They, they, so I guess what I can say is this. They so bad wanted their nation back, their freedom back. They so bad knew the promises of the Old Testament that God would return their nation to them. They seemed to be so focused on that, they skipped the whole suffering Messiah for the sins. That's the best answer I can give you, but they just didn't see it. Because you're right, they would see verses 6 and 7, and they would jump right down to verse 7 and say, Oh, right there, look, of the increase of his government and peace, there'll be no end. The Messiah is going to rule and reign forever. He's going to rule and reign forever, but he has to die on the cross first for our sins. Anybody else have anything here? Rose. And that's the hard part because when we do accept Christ, everything is going to be fine, eternally speaking. But when we accept Christ, it doesn't mean that temporarily everything is going to be fine at this moment. And that's the thing is, is Jesus going to rule and reign forever? Well, yes. Okay, well, that's all I need to hear. Don't tell me anything else. Okay, well, yeah, but before he rules and reigns forever, he has to die on the cross for our sins. Nope, not hearing that. I just heard you say he's going to rule and reign forever. So, Carol. Carol. And I think that's a great point. And one of my favorite points I've ever heard in a message goes along with that, where the pastor said, am I happy in my marriage? Am I happy in my ministry? Am I happy in my life? And he goes, no, I'm not. He goes, I do not have a happy marriage. He goes, I have moments of happiness in my marriage. But then he came back and said, now I have a joyful marriage. I have a joyful ministry, and I have a joyful life. He's getting, and he stressed the point that happiness is a momentary, temporary thing. On December 25th, there's going to be a lot of moments of happiness. Moments of happiness. But those moments of happiness are not going to carry on for all of eternity. And that's what you're saying there, Carol. Christ promises us a never-ending joy. 
never-ending joy. I think if we went to Jesus and tapped him on the shoulder when he was praying in the garden before the cross and say, hey, Jesus, are you happy right now? No, the Bible says he was in anguish. The Bible, though, says for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Christ was always joyful, but there was moments of not happiness there. Anybody else have anything here before I close up? Surely. And that's where the joy supersedes whatever situation we're going through. But if I go to a funeral and I see a godly Christian woman or godly Christian man burying their spouse and I see them crying, I don't go up to them and say, hey, don't cry. That's a moment of where sadness. And if you go to the book of Ecclesiastes, it makes that very clear. There's moments of sadness. They still have joy, but at that moment, it's sadness. And as a parent, some of you may stop and hit your knees one time and realize, my kid's not right with the Lord. I still have joy in Jesus, but my heart's breaking for what my child is going through right now, and I'm not really happy. I'm reading a great book right now where it's exactly what you were just talking about, Shirley, where this guy says we as Christians are so fake, where he says we're going through a tough time, and someone comes up and says, how are you doing? And we just smile and say, ah, Jesus is getting me through. Okay, that's true. But he said, look at what Jesus went through, and he did this, and it's a great list. He said Jesus had moments of sadness. He cried. He had moments of anger where he cleaned the temple. He had moments of anguish. Jesus had these reins of emotion. And sometimes we look at ourselves as Christians as just being stoic. Nothing gets to me. The truth is, as a human being and as a picture of Christ, I will have some ups and downs in my emotion. But here's the key. No matter what I'm going through, there's this baseline of joy that God says, no matter what, you have salvation in me. And that's what gets you through any of this. And that's what we've got to keep in the back of our minds. Anybody else have anything here before we go on? All right. Well, it's 8 o'clock. So we are not meeting, don't forget, December 25th or January 1st. So if I do not get a chance to see you before then, obviously Merry Christmas. Don't forget Program Practice Friday for Parents with Children. Also on um, Sunday is Christmas Program at the 10 o'clock, regular service 8.30. If I remember correctly, we have to clear the stage off. Um, for Christmas programs. So if we could have some manual labor help for that, and as much as possible, we need to get the stuff in the hallway, in the back there, because the kids will be using these two side rooms for Christmas program. So if we could have some help afterwards here to get the stage cleared off, we would appreciate that. So, all right, let's pray and we'll let you guys go. Heavenly Father, just good to be here, and Lord, help us to just remember that. Wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's what Christmas is, and help us to keep that focus. And as we run into people walking in the shadow of death or darkness, that we could uplift them and encourage them in you. Thank you, and we praise you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Well, you guys have a good week, and God bless.